Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. to see everybody. I'm stoked about these parties tonight. I mean, I'm not much of a partier, so this, this is like the, the height of my, my partying, is this Super Bowl event every year. That's a lot of water, man. Thanks. <laughs> I asked him to get me a water. He gave me three. It's amazing. It's, it's beautiful. Thank you. True. Um, we're going to get into it. We've got a lot to cover today. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Uh, I do see a lot of faces that I don't recognize. I'm, I'm Pastor Brandon Briscoe, and I have the privilege of uh, ministering here in the college and young adult ministry. Um, and before we get into it, I just want to warn you in advance uh, that we're in Acts chapter 13, which exemplifies exactly what we want to be as a ministry. So when we talk about Kaya, the college and young adult ministry, What we're talking about is mobilizing young people to live the Great Commission all over the world. Okay, not just here in Kansas City. That's where we start. We start on the college campuses and in our workplaces. uh, But we desire ultimately to to spread ourselves throughout the entire world to share the good news of Jesus Christ, the only answer for our sin problem. And so this chapter, you're coming in and and you're getting ready to hear a message uh, that begins with the premise that our primary responsibilities as believers in Jesus Christ is to take the gospel to the known world. And, uh, and so, last we left off, we were studying in uh, verse, verses uh, 1 through this point here, uh, uh, verse 14, the life of the Apostle Paul and his first missionary journey that him and his buddy Barnabas are going on. Okay, so they just got ordained. Uh, They're going out into the world and they're spreading the message throughout uh, a region that we refer to historically as Asia Minor. And so we've already talked about their their endeavor through Cyprus, which is an island. Uh, And now they've reached the shores of Asia Minor and they're about to preach the gospel in a place called Perga. Now last time we were together, we told uh, a somewhat unfortunate story about how Paul and Barnabas' friend, John Mark, we refer, refer to him as Mark, he's the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark, uh, bailed on them hard. Okay? Uh, they had gone through Cyprus together, and when they reached the shores of Perga, Mark decides to head back. Now, we, we recognize that Mark was a young man, and maybe that he got in over his head a little bit on this first missionary journey. And so he headed back home to Jerusalem to kind of hide out and regroup, We talked about all the reasons why he might have done that. And it functioned kind of as a warning for us. And and so we need to know that we are susceptible as ministers of the gospel to experience people rejecting that work. So we talked about that primarily from the perspective that there's going to be people on our team. People that have been with us in ministry. People that we've discipled. People in our Bible studies. People who are with us on campus or in our place of work, and they stood with us for a season, but turned back. We talked about how to deal with that. 
people who maybe failed in their faith or rejecting the work, and they, they turn back. And we learned three distinct things, okay? So we're still reviewing here. Number one, we, we learned that you have to be prepared for people to reject you and the ministry. You have to be prepared for that. And that's a heart preparation. Okay, you can intellectually understand that. You can understand that people turn away and they, and they, and they go different directions from you. But, but to be honest with you, until you've experienced that, the real pain and the suffering is a heart pain. Right? It's not an intellectual pain. Pain is always an emotional thing. You have to prepare your emotions for what it's going to be like the day that the person that you love and adore turns away and begin, maybe goes back to the world, or maybe they're just not prepared for the thing that they, they thought they were called to do. And we've got to be ready for that type of thing. Two, we also learned that you have to pray that God redeems them back for His namesake. All right, so there's a work of prayer involved. There's a work of faith because the people that we lose along the way, we know that God can redeem. We talked about this in terms of, of Mark himself. Mark comes back to a place of strength. He comes, comes into a place of maturity and he rejoins the work. And we can see that even in terms of what Paul talks about when he talks about Mark being someone that he needs in his life. And that's a really powerful testimony. Okay? And so we see Mark come back to a place of maturity, and he leans in to the work. Well, you know what? God redeems people. And the people that we've lost along the way in ministry, I absolutely 100% believe that God will bring them back to us. I believe that. And so you can, you can sit in, in doubt, uh, and you can be upset, and you can, you can uh, be disappointed all you want. I'm going to believe that God will bring those people back to us, and we'll have another shot at it. The third thing is, we learn that you have to prepare your heart to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord. Why? Because you need to be humble lest you be sifted. Right? You aren't any different than those who've turned away. You're not any different. You have weaknesses as well. You're not perfect. And no matter how resolved you think you are, you have weaknesses. And you can fall prey to the, to, to the lies and the deceptions of the devil that would want to keep you out of church that would want to keep you out of Bible study, that would want to keep you out of discipleship, and want to keep you out of the mission. You are susceptible those, to those things. I don't care if you were ordained a deacon today. I don't care if you are, were stood up there as a teaching elder today. I don't care if you run a Bible study. We've seen Bible study leaders fall. You are susceptible to the lies of the devil unless you're full of faith and humble before the Lord. And you know your weaknesses. Yeah? So we have to acknowledge those things. Those things are very crucial to what we learned last time we were together. Now, I hate to say it, but that was only part one. Okay? This week we will also be addressing rejection. Okay? So fun. That's fun. Rejection. Um, that's why we're literally calling it Rejection Part 2. I mean, I don't know if you saw the title slide when we face reject, part two, okay, the sequel. Um, but Christianity is hard. Christianity is a hard, like if you're doing it right, right, I'm not talking about cultural Christianity, I'm talking about Christianity itself. When you're doing it right and you're following the Lord as a disciple of Jesus Christ, there are aspects of it that are hard and you are going to face rejection, Okay, you are going to face suffering. Jesus Christ himself promised that to his disciples. Right? Now the beautiful thing is, 
that we know, Jesus told us this too, he's like, if they hate you, you can know that they hated me first, so that should make you feel better. And I think about that, I think, first, the first thing I think is, that doesn't actually make me feel better. <laughs> they hate all of us. I don't know if that... But then when I think about the fact that this is, the, this is the creator of the world that we're talking about, Jesus Christ, the redeemer of our souls, who, who never deser- deserved rejection, right? We deserved rejection. Okay, the one that didn't deserve rejection was rejected. And in that, I find peace. Okay, because I don't just have um, a fellow sufferer in Jesus Christ. Okay, I have, I have a, a perfect friend who can understand it at every level. And I think that that's pretty powerful. And so rejection is a, p- a part of, of who we are, and it's a part of what we do. And when we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, there will be people who dismiss us. And they might even treat us poorly. And it's, it's crazy because we still are convinced that if our, if our gospel message is presented with eloquence. How could, how could anyone ever reject that? We're convinced of our own intellectual uh, uh, you know, ability. We're convinced that in our own power we can see people saved, and that's just not how it works. All right, So that's actually another relief, is that it isn't really up to us. But we are sometimes convinced that if we present the gospel, if we present the message of Jesus Christ in a way that's very, very, you know, if this person needs some form of apologetics, well, I'm ready for that. Right? Um, I know just enough about science to have a conversation, right, about, about you know, their, their doubt about who God is. Or maybe I'm convinced from some sort of philosophical perspective that I can, can convince them that, that God is real and that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Or maybe I've got my Romans Road message down pat. Okay? And we're convinced sometimes that, that we can do this in our own power. And then we're surprised when people refuse the message as though they're refusing Uriah's Super Bowl salmon buffalo dip. Which I'm telling you, if he makes it, reject it <laughs> outright. If he makes it. Now, I say salmon because the, the literally put salmon in the buffalo dip that requires chicken, right? So, like, I don't know if you've ever had salmon buffalo dip. Clementine had not. And so, you know, she was, I think, five at the time, and no one knew it, but she kept returning to the table, mainly because she, she must literally have no discerning palate whatsoever. <laughs> and she devoured it and gobbled it up, and uh, she may have been the only one. And she puked all the, she, you guys know Prospect, so we stopped over there off Swope, and we had to pull over. And she is just, she is hurling, okay? And the pl- a police officer stops, right? Because he sees a white family stopped on prospect. And he's, he's just like, Are you, do you know where you're at right now? And so um, we're like, no, our daughter is just vomiting. And he's like, cool, peace. And he just, then he leaves um, quickly because he doesn't want to help with that. Um, but you know what? Um, the, the thing is, what do, we do, what do we do in the moments where we, we feel like every, the recipe was right? Like Uriah was like stoked. 
He's in the kitchen mixing the buffalo dip. He puts it out on the table, and there's a rejection, right? What do we do when there's a rejection, right? And we feel, listen, honestly, a lot of times when we present the gospel, we think to ourselves, well, how could anybody, how could anybody reject that? And that, you know what, that's fair. That's fair. Because uh, the message of Jesus Christ is a powerful one. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. What do we do when people do reject? How do we understand it? How do we make sense of it? Because it can be painful. It can be very painful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message from Acts chapter 13. Lord, I, I am uh, um, I'm just uh, foolish enough and, and maybe just smart enough to mess this whole you know, message up today. And uh, I, I need you to speak through me. Um, in this room full of people, I, I don't know everybody's heart. Um, some are friends, some are new acquaintances. Um, Lord, there are some people I've, I've never met before. And, and so, Lord, I, I can't speak to them, so please, would you do it? And uh, I ask this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Now, this story is exceptionally important, not only because it holds principles that empower us in our ministry life, but also because it marks a shift in emphasis in Paul's ministry from a Jewish focus to a Gentile focus. And so, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he comes from a Jewish background, Okay, when he, was, uh, he accepted Jesus Christ, he came out of the Jewish religion. And when he was made an apostle, uh, as we talked about before, his first natural inclination was to go to the Jewish people to preach the gospel because these are the people that he knew. And he anticipated, fully anticipated, that, that he understood them culturally, that there was some relevance there, and that when he went to them to preach, that it would be, uh, that it would be received. And... Um, so Paul and Barnabas went to the temple. They go, they go to the temple first because they desired to see the religious order of the Jewish people turn from their sin and receive the Messiah that was prophesied of. That's what they wanted. Okay, that's why they go to the temple. Um, now we see this uh, even in Jesus' ministry, is that he would go to the temple uh, to preach. And so they're really just following the model that they know of in Jesus. And then the message that we're about to hear Paul preach is the last great appeal to the Jews as a co- congregation. This is the last time that we see Paul, the apostle, who's the, in, the, in, in the story of Acts and the going forth of the gospel, uh, he is the man. Paul is the, between here and the end of the book, we re, we're mainly talking about the apostle Paul. And this is the moment that marks his turning away from a Jewish focus towards a Gentile focus, and by Gentile what we're talking about, what we mean by that is anyone who's not a Jew. People who had historically, throughout time, worshipped many gods, a plethora of gods, right? named many, many different things. These were the heathen people. And what we see is, is Paul begin to go to them. And so, doctrinally, this is an important moment because we see, we see Paul change his focus to the Gentiles. So let's start here in verse 14. Again, they're in Perga, and they are in the synagogue. But when they departed from Perga, they came to, I'm sorry, this is Antioch of Pisidia, which is nearby, a nearby city uh, uh, to Perga. They go to Antioch of Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down, which was, that's the custom. Everybody sits down just like what you're doing now. They're, They're holding a Jewish church service. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, 
Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Okay, so this is kind of the tradition. Okay, so they read, they read from the prophets, they read from the Torah, and then at the end of that, they ask if there are any elders in the congregation who would be willing to stand up and present some form of exhortation. By, by, by exhortation, we mean uh, an encouraging charge. A charge to the people that would be encouraging and provoke them to deeper faith. All right? And as we said before, we, we see Jesus take advantage of this over and over again. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And so the Apostle Paul, because of his education and because he was a man about the law in his previous faith life, he had, he had the privilege of standing up in this congregation to speak. And so he takes full advantage of that. So here we see Paul, someone with great familiarity with the etiquette and cultural dynamic of the Sabbath day, excitedly stand up to a room full of people who when they saw him would have immediately started murmuring because they would have been familiar with the reputation of Paul, right? Someone that had been very, very faithful to the Jewish faith previously, now a very, very faithful Christian. People would not have been very excited about him standing up to preach. And so perhaps they would have been murmuring, whispering in the room. But undeterred, he simply waves his hand to garner their attention and silences them as he begins his oration. And what we find in this message is not a whole lot different than what we see in the messages of Stephen in chapter 7 or in Peter's message in chapter 2. There, there are a lot of similarities. It's essentially a petition for the Jewish believers to turn away and repent and look towards the Messiah that they rejected in the Gospels. Okay, you with me? So that's the context. So here we have Paul. Paul speaks. When Paul stood up and beckoning them with his hand, right, he would have waved them to silence. He said, men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an high arm brought, uh, brought he them out of it. So what he begins with is first an appeal to the audience. He finds a common ground, right? He's saying, our fathers. Now, this would have been really important because these would have been Jews of the dispersion. In other words, these weren't what we would see as traditional Jews who remained in Jerusalem. These were the Jews of the dispersion. In other words, they lived uh, basically in Hellenistic societies, okay? Would have been Greek societies. And they would have oftentimes been considered maybe not quite as true a Jewish people as maybe the Jews that remained in Jerusalem or who went back to Jerusalem to worship. Does this make sense to you? And so what he does is he finds that common ground and he says, me, the, uh, 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 a Sadducee, okay, a man of great authority, you and I were both called out, the people of God, long, a long, long time ago. We are his nation. We are his children. You remember that? And he delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians. So he speaks God's grace towards his children. And his words would have sounded affirming. And as he spoke those words, maybe those who were murmuring before would have become silent and listened a little bit more carefully. And the murmuring would have stilled. 
while others maybe still looked upon him glaringly with cynicism. Verse 18, And about the time of forty years, he preaches, Forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. So notice that he points to their failure. He's pointing to their failure, which every good gospel message should have, should point towards the failure of people. We have failed God. Okay, whether it be the nation of Israel or us individually, we have all failed God. And so this is, a, this is a, what we would re- recognize as a perfect model for sharing the gospel because when you're calling people to Christ, ultimately what you're calling them out of is their sin, their failure, their inability to please God. And so he's reminding them of their failures here. Verse 20, he continues on. The testimony goes on. He talks about the judges and the kings. Verse 20, And after he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet, and afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin by the space of 40 years. And it's almost as though he's saying, then the judges, and they failed. And then Samuel, and you rejected him, and now Saul, and we all know Saul, was he a, a good leader or a bad leader? Yeah, he was a bad leader. And he's walking them through failure after failure, generation after generation. Verse 22, and when, he had removed, uh, and when he had removed him, remember Saul was removed, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill, uh, fulfill all my will. And this man's seed... Hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus? He's not mincing any words here. And so what he says to them is, look, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that through the seed of David, God is going to raise a Messiah that's going to deliver the nation of Israel and go about saving the whole world. You know that for a fact. And that man was Jesus Christ. That's his message to them. Remember, he's calling them to repent and to turn towards the Messiah that they had previously rejected. Is this making sense to everyone? Verse 24, he talks about John the Baptist. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Now, now here, just it's important for us to know, how did, how did the Jews think about John the Baptist? Okay? Now, historically, and even from the Gospels, we recognized that it was a little bit mixed, okay, because he was a rabble rouser. But John was, was essentially accepted as a prophet among the Jews. He was actually well-received, even though he was a little bit rebellious, and, and though they, the, the Jewish order may not have accepted everything that he said, overall, it's important for us to note that the nation of Israel as a whole would have heard John's message and said, this call to repentance is a call to holiness and an anticipation of a coming Messiah, and we agree with that. And so they would have maybe even encouraged people to get baptized and repent in anticipation of a coming Messiah. And he's reminding them of that right here. Okay, is everybody hanging with me? I know that sometimes the, the nation of Israel stuff gets confusing. I want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying. And as John fulfilled his course, okay, and you might want to go back and read about John the Baptist, okay, to hear exactly how he fulfilled his course. We don't have time for that today. He says, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. 
So John made a point to say, I am not the Messiah. But behold, there cometh one after me whose shoes of his feet I am not even worthy to loose. Right? I'm not even, I'm not even worthy of approaching the Messiah in a position of servitude. I'm not even deserving of that. I don't even deserve the right to un- unbuckle his shoe. Does that make sense? That's a, that's a very powerful statement that would have resonated and pricked the hearts of those in the audience that day. Now you can see Paul has gone from reminding them of God's provision in the wilderness. Right? That's what he spoke about first. He's going from reminding them of God's provision to reminding them of his promise. Don't forget that he promised you that he was going to send a Messiah. To reminding them of his prophet. Okay, we've gone from provision to promise to prophet. And you heard the prophet. You heard what the prophet said. He said that there was a coming Messiah. And he said that he wasn't even worthy to touch the feet of Jesus when Jesus arrived. Don't forget, don't forget that story. And then ultimately, he pointed to the prince. To the prince. The prince of peace as being Jesus Christ. Verse 26. So this is the longest part of the exhortation. So, so listen carefully to what I'm about to read. Here is the gospel, most plainly. And for those of you this morning who do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you should listen exceptionally closely. Okay? Attune your ear. You may, you may think you know Jesus. You, you may think you've heard the story. But I want you to understand that there is no God that has ever, ever ever redeem man from their sin. There is no other there is no other faith system where the God of that faith laid down his life to deliver people from their sin only to to defeat death and justify his forgiving voice. Jesus Christ is the exception to all the gods and all the faith systems and all the philosophies that men have ever come up with. And I, and I implore you to consider that. Verse 26. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, They have fulfilled them in condemning him. In other words, you didn't hear the voice of the prophets or else you would know the name Jesus Christ. It's a very serious warning. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, in other words, all the prophecies of the Old Testament that speak of Jesus Christ, the Messiah's death, When those things were fulfilled, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. I love how plainly he says this. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, 
God hath fulfilled the same unto, his, unto their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again. As it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up, him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep. And he was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. Okay, so you got to remember, you got to hear that from, with Jewish ears. They're using David the king. Okay, someone who they greatly respected as the patriarch of patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Even he saw corruption. Even he saw the day of his death. Even he himself lays, uh, laid his head in Abraham's bosom in the heart of the earth. But Jesus Christ, no, no. No, he did not. He defeated death. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justifi justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. In other words, there is no work that you could ever do to earn the favor of God. There is no law that you could abide by. There is, there is no system or religious thought. There is no philosophy of man that you could abide by. No moralistic system that would get you to a place where you could find forgiveness of sin. It must be God that pardon, pardons you of sin. And Jesus Christ made the way. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold ye despisers. We probably have some despisers even this room, in this room today who are quick to dismiss the man Jesus Christ. Behold ye despisers and, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. So Paul makes declaration a masterful presentation of the gospel that appeals to the Jewish mind and the religious experience. He reminds them of the story. He reminds them of the witnesses of his resurrection. He speaks of Jesus as their promised Savior who fulfilled their prophecies, who proved his divinity through miracles. He had a sinless life before them. His declaration of truth resonated in their ears and his death, burial, and resurrection Brought the, brought the fulfillment of all of the things that they'd ever been waiting for. This was their Messiah. And they only needed to bring their sins ready to be forgiven. That's it. They just needed a humble heart. That's all they needed. Now there was some that wanted more, and there's some who walked away un, untouched by this message. And this is where we get to the heart of, of what I want you to hear today. Are you ready? I, I know I, That might have been long and wearisome. But I say all that to say that there will be some that walk away dismissive and there will be some that are ready to receive. Now listen, verse 42, And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Okay, so there was an audience. There was a group of people who were attentive. And these would have most likely been primarily Greeks who worshipped 
within the Jewish faith system. Think about Cornelius. When we talked about Cornelius earlier on in Acts, he was a Greek in terms of heritage and ethnicity, but he practiced as an uncircumcised Jew. Okay, So he went to temple, and he would have practiced within the, the Jewish faith system. These are the people that are like, hey, 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 that was really interesting. There was also a handful of Jews who said, hey, that was good. We want to hear more. We want to hear more. Would you come back next weekend and preach this message again and take some more time to explain it to us? And Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas very excitingly agreed. So they agreed. And the next week, the whole gang showed up. Check this out. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. In other words, all week long, people were talking about that message and how powerful it was and how interesting it was and, and what they had to say. And rumors began to fly and almost the whole city of Antioch of Pisidia showed up to hear them again. Now, without surprise, we find that the, the, the religious are not a big fan. They don't like this. Verse 45, here's their natural response. They throw a fit. Beware of all fit throwers, by the way. People that throw fits are untempered in their spirit and are blind. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold. Notice that they waxed bold. They didn't cower. They pressed in and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. In other words, the gospel message is for the Jewish people first, and that's why it was necessary we come here and we preach this message in your, in your synagogue today. That's why we came here. Because Jesus' word to us was that we first go to you and declare the message. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. pretty powerful. They refused him outright. They spoke evil of their gospel. And it was the end of Paul's work directly with the Jews. He would from this moment on turn his attention to the Gentiles. But it's here we ask ourselves again, what do we do when our gospel message is rejected? Now let's begin by talking about the nature of rejection. The nature of rejection. Let's understand what rejection truly is. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. You guys need to do some work. Move your fingers. Luke chapter 8. I know I always put the verses up here. I always worry. That helps me. It keeps things speedy. But I worry sometimes that you guys aren't getting exercise jumping around your Bible. When I was a kid, we used to do things called verse drills, right? Bible drills. Oh, yeah, like, I, I get it. The good Christians called them sword drills. We called them Bible drills. <laughs> Extra spiritual if you call your Bible a sword. <clears throat> okay, now we're going to talk about rejection here. Now Jesus gives us a parable. 
and he talks about rejection. And he gives us an illustration in terms of, of sowing seeds and planting things. All right? And in an agricultural society, this would have been very easily understood. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to lay this out very simply to you because some of you have never even had a garden before. Right? You, everything you touch dies. You've got plants in your house. You forget to water them. Okay, so let's, let's walk through this and make sure we really understand it. So here's the parable, Luke 8, 4. And when much, much people get, were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds a little bit about like this experience that, that Paul and Barnabas have. People were gathered, he spake by a parable. And this is what he says, A sower went out to sow seed. And that word sow just means to disperse seed, that it might take root and grow. To sow his seed, and, and he sowed, and some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away, because it lacked moisture. And some fell upon thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it out. And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried out, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? And he said, unto, You know, Jesus is so faithful to explain. When people want to hear what the parable means, he's faithful to explain himself. And his, his disciples asked, and he said, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to others in parables, that they seeing they might not see, and hearing they may not hear. In other words, there's some that don't want to know the parable, and so their ears and their heart remain condemned. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Yeah? The seed is the word of God. And we can understand that, right? So, what Paul and Barnabas are doing, and what we as people, disciples of Jesus Christ, are doing, is taking the word of God, the gospel message, to all the people of the world, and we're dispersing the seed all over UMKC's campus, okay? All over Grandview, all over Lee Summit, okay? All over Overland Park, all over Penn Valley Camp. We're dispersing the seed. And so he goes on to explain. First, he talks about the wayside ground, okay? The, par the parcel of ground, the portion of the ground, okay, that seems to be outside the boundary of the garden, all right? Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. In other words, there are some people that hear the gospel, and before it ever even has a chance to take root, Satan catches them away like a bird who eats the cast seed. So this is a work of Satan to deter, to deter and to dismantle, to disarm the gospel at any cost, so that the eyes of the rejectors might remain blind. Now we know this about Israel, don't we? Okay, it, you can read about this in Romans chapter eleven, verse seven. Okay, Paul talks about how Israel is blind to the gospel. Why? Because they had already rejected it, and God was okay with letting them harden their hearts. Okay, He was willing to let them be blinded by Satan. Look at Second Corinthians four three. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. 
In terms of rejection, this will be the type of person that we encounter the most. This is the person that we will encounter the most. You understand? When we go out and we disperse the seed of God's gospel, this is the person that we will encounter most often. Listen, and let me describe it this way. This is a person who for years has been primed by deceptions to reject the gospel when it comes. And listen to me. In terms of hope, some of you in this room used to be that person. You used to be that person. You used to be wayside ground. You, your heart used to be turned away from the Lord so that even when the gospel came, you rejected it. And it took many, many plantings. It took many, many times of hearing it before you came to a place where you could understand it and you were willing to let go of the deceptions of the devil. In terms of rejection, this will be the person we see the most, a person for whom the seed never has an opportunity to settle because the ground is inhabited by the enemy. So key point number one. You didn't think we were going to have any key points. Okay, better, better late than never. Key point number one. Sometimes the gospel is rejected by the act of devilish design. By the act. It's, it's perpetrated against you, and you're a willing receiver. Does that make sense? And so the devil is at work designing ways in which he can, he can infiltrate your mind and your life and set you up against the gospel. So then when it comes... There'll be something there to receive and to snatch up the seed before it can take root. Sometimes the gospel is rejected by the act of devilish design in your life. Next, the rocky ground. We've got to keep moving here. The rocky ground. The rocky ground. Jesus says, They on the rock, speaking of the seeds that fall upon the rock, are they which when they hear receive the word with joy. And these have no root. They have no root which for a while believe, and in a time of temptation, they fall away. These are people that initially receive the word with joy. They have light for a moment. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about this type of person. Perhaps they have a, a declaration of faith, but the reality is that the seed never actually takes root. Now, people that might come to church for a season, and they hear the message for a while, they see the light, they recognize it at some level for what it is. Yeah, Jesus, okay, yeah. I like that. Sounds good. Okay, but there comes a moment because the seed never takes root. They never actually accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior that they turn away. We've seen these people in our Bible studies, right? And we have a tendency to, to spend lots of time ministering to them because they present themselves as willing to hear. But in a blink of an eye, they're gone. Their flesh gets a hold of them. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such a like of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in the past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom. Let me tell you, 
I was talking to this morning, I, I was privy to a conversation. Jason White, who led the Cost of Discipleship class this weekend, had a conversation with Kenny, and, and uh, I was just there in the midst. And, and Jason said that in the midst of the Cost of Discipleship, which was last weekend, he was talking about a need to follow Jesus Christ with your whole life. In other words, you're going to need to let go of sins that we find right here in this list. And so if, you, if you've been practicing fornication, then that is something that you're going to have to recognize that those sins, you have to flee from those sins if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And he gave several examples. In the midst of giving those examples, someone stood up and walked out. And only later today did he find out from another person that she walked out of the cost of discipleship class because she's been in a fornicating relationship. That's very sober, is it? isn't it? In other words, I, I like the idea of Jesus. But to be his follower and to give him my life, if it means giving up these types of things, I'm sorry, I have to bow out. And then they go. And this happens. This happens. Key point. Sometimes the gospel is rejected by attraction to deficient desires. Deficient desires. And what I mean by that is that every person has legitimate needs in their life. In other words, everybody needs love. Everybody, everybody needs that. Everybody desires it. But many of us go about getting those legitimate needs by illegitimate manners. And so instead of following God's way, we choose to fornicate because it creates the perception of love. And we find relationships, we find experiences. This is what God refers to as sin is filling our life full of illegitimate answers to legitimate needs. That is what sin is. And there are people who come and they see who Jesus Christ is, but because they're so entrenched in the attractions and the desires of this world, that they, ha they have no choice in their mind but to walk away. And that is the rocky ground. And now we have the, thorn the thorny ground. Did you get that? We're moving quick. Okay, so stay with me here. The thorny ground. Verse 14. And, and that which fell uh, among the thorns are they which when they had heard go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. These, these are those who receive the message of the gospel perhaps intellectually and are not, in, in most cases, these are people who are not saved, you understand? But much like the rocky ground, we see something happen in their lives, you know? Something seems to be sprouting. Something seems to be taking root. But before they can actually become disciples, before they can grow, the world gets a hold of them. In other words, this is another external device. Um, I have a... You, you guys have heard me talk... I have a, those of you who know me for a long time, you've heard me talk about the flower bed on the north side of my house. Okay? Which is the is the bane of my existence, okay? In this bed, okay, I mean, we've lived there for 10 years now. In this flower bed is a, is a very cunning vine, okay? And I can, no matter what I do, okay, I cannot seem to get rid of it because just a little bit of root left behind will always produce in the spring a vine that runs through the course of this flower bed and wants to choke out everything that's there. And I'm constantly working that thing. Pulling, I mean, it's awful. 
And this stuff, the roots are so hard. And even after tilling the ground several times, there are still places where this thing springs up. Why? Because it had, it had generations to establish itself. And so even when the seeds begin to take root, there's something that's always there present and ready to choke it out. And some of you in this room right now, you don't know it, but there's a family member or a friend or a situation in your life that is preparing itself to choke out the thing that God has begun in you. And I'm warning you against that now. Do not be a rejecter. Do not let the root get choked out. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 says this, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now I say that to say this. Now, now money is only just an example of godlessness in one's life. And so what I say when I use this illustration, if you go back up in that passage, you can study it out for yourself, what this passage is actually about is godlessness. And so for many of us, money is one way, a good job, a good education, wealth. Okay, some of you, it's a relationship, it's a family member, it's a situation that you have that keeps you from following Jesus and is going to choke out whatever little bit of faith seems to be taking root, it will choke it out before it ever even has an opportunity to be established, before you actually even have an opportunity for some of you to be saved. The cares of this world are great, and there are weeds that dominate the ground and overtake those seeds that are cast in their midst. Key point. Sometimes the gospel is rejected by the architecture of devious devices. The architecture of devious devices. Those things that surround us in the world. That's how the Bible refers to it. As the world's system. Okay, the world has a system. And it has infrastructure. And it has architecture. There are aspects of the world that are all around you that seek to choke out the seed of God working in your life. Sometimes the ground, or the gospel is rejected by the architecture of devious design. Now lastly, the good ground. The good ground. 15. But that on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, kept it, and bring forth fruit with patience. And so there are some, and maybe even a very few, the very few that choose to walk the narrow path, that go through the gate of Jesus Christ, those few where the seed takes root and begins to grow. Now, of course, there's nothing more worthy of rejoicing than when the seed takes root. This is where true celebration in the heart of other believers, right, should happen. And those times are very, very exciting. There's lots of adulation. Every minister who spreads the seeds of the gospel, there will be many, many moments that we'll see. And there'll be seasons where we see the seed take root. And those will be seasons of celebration for us. And you ought to anticipate those. But there will also be seasons where the seed that we spread seems to only just be choked out. And we have to know that. We have to know that. 
You know, when I put down grass in, uh, on my lawn, I do that, yes, that's how old I am. Okay, this is dad life. Okay, when I, when I lay down seed, I do what's called overseed, okay? All right, where, where instead of laying down the prescriptive amount of seed into this particular plot, what I do is I do twice the amount, okay? Because I want to ensure that the seed actually takes, and so I'm willing to spend the extra money. I'm not that tight, okay? I want that seed, I want it to grow nice and dense, so that next year, I don't have to really think about too much about maintaining that. I want hardy grass. So I simply double the amount of seed. And so what they call overseeding, I call reasonable. Do you hear that? You hear that illustration? Do you understand what I'm talking about? So I double the amount of prescriptive seed. So the rejection itself, knowing that the ground wants to reject the seed, I choose to double the amount that I speak. I double the amount. You know there's no limit on the amount of seed. The word of God is unlimited. And we're called to preach the gospel in Mark chapter 16 to every creature. Every creature. And so I choose to overseed. There's no reason not to live that way. And in this way, I meet the old adage, little wager, little gain, much wagered, much to gain. I give myself over. I give my mind. I give my heart. I'm willing to be hurt. I'm willing to be rejected. I'm willing to suffer. So what can be learned from Paul and Barnabas in the face of rejection? Verse 50, but the Jews stirred up the, the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off their feet against them and came unto Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy. When you face rejection, it is always good to turn to Christ's commands. Okay, listen. In Luke chapter 9, verse 4, these men knew. Listen to me. I know. You guys are all like antsy and ready to get home because you've got your own buffalo dip sauce that you've got to make. (laughs) And you've got to get wherever you've got to go today. Listen. uh, People are worshiping the chiefs right now. Be, with, be here with us. Okay, so listen. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus tells the disciples that there is going to be a moment where they have to dust off their feet. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. And whatsoever however house ye enter into, there abide, and thence depart. And whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. This is an injunction against the Jews. It's a very serious symbol that Paul and Barnabas do right here. Very serious. Key point number four. This is very important. When one door closes, another will open. That is the point. That's the inspirational point for us. Okay, so while this symbolizes doctrinally that Paul and Barnabas and the apostles were turning their attention away from the Jews and turning it towards the Gentiles for us, this is, a, this is an inspirational teaching for us. This is an inspirational symbol that when we get rejected, it is reasonable for us to understand that it's our responsibility to say, the dust of this city I take from off my feet because there's the dust of another city that will get on my feet. It is time to go overseed. 
It is time to go plant somewhere else. And I will trust, I will trust the Lord. The dust of your feet, dusting them off, is to say, I have done my part. I have said my piece. And Christ was rejected here. And I have no choice but to turn this operation over to the sole authority of God himself. When we dust off our feet, it symbolizes that the work of our own doing is done. And it is only in God's hands. Do you know how to do that? I'm, I'm talking to the leaders. I'm talking to the believers that have been around for a minute. Do you know how to do that? Or is your heart still being dragged behind the last person that you ministered to and rejected you? Are you suffering pain unnecessarily? When, when you know that the Lord is calling you to continue to work the field, do you know how to give your investment, the one that, was, the, the one that has borne no fruit, over to God in prayer? So key point. Sometimes... What was a deputation of the gospel? By deputation, I mean ascending, a calling. What was once your deputation? What was once the great commission in your life, by necessity, becomes supplication by prayer. In other words, sometimes the ministry work that we're doing, because of rejection, we have no choice but to change that deputation, change that work, change that commission over to a work of prayer. I can do nothing else but pray. We need not fear, we need not dread. We simply need to lay it at the throne of Jesus Christ and turn it over to the king's business. Turn it over to the king's business. Why? Because he's the king. I told you I'd give you quotes from missionaries. Here's one. Missionary Hudson Taylor says, When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. And so if you have a ministry life that is absent of prayer, if it's void in your life from day to day, if you do your daily reading, but you, you fail to pray and call upon God to do the things that you can't do, then you're asking to only ever encounter ground that will reject your seed. And you're so unconcerned with those that have rejected you that your heart doesn't yearn on them and you're not even willing to give them over to him because you're, you're busy doing something else. You're busy doing your work. And we're going to close this way. Paul says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be, may be God and not of us. You hear that? That it be of God, not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death 
for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. This is the mentality. Every believer needs to recognize this has to be our mentality. This has to be the way that we see the work. We will be rejected. We will be persecuted. We will be spoken poorly of. People will despise us. Our friends, our family members, they're not going to understand. This book will always deliver us. And even in a barren land, in our lives, fruit can be born. Even if fruit is not born in your friend or your family member or your classmate, even if fruit is, even if there is rejection, there can always be fruit in my life I need not despair. So as we pray and as we worship in closing, if you know that there's something the matter with your prayer life, if you know you've struggled to believe and to turn those rejectors over to God, if you've struggled to have faith, if you've struggled to overseed in the, in the ministry of your life, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if there's any of these reasons that you need to pray this morning, it's time to pray. It's time to grab your friend or the person that brought you or, or someone nearby and say, look, I know that there's something amiss in my life. There's something wrong. There's something not right. I need the Redeemer to work in my life. Then let's do that right now. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, I, I thank you just for the ability to cover as much ground as we covered today, but there is something very pressing here. In each of our lives, there is something that we are supposed to hold on to. There's something that's been convicting us as we've listened to your word taught. And Lord, I pray that no one would leave this place until they've given over themselves and received you at whatever level that means. If it means that they don't know you as their Lord and Savior, if they've never actually turned to you in faith, Lord, that they would, they would deal with that. Even right now, Lord, there's nothing greater in heaven. There's no greater rejoicing. Kansas, even if the Chiefs win today, and the accolades and the, and the cheers and the glorification, if we, if we scream and we shout at the top of our lungs in excitement, that will not touch the sound in the heavenly places when one soul is saved and delivered from the gra uh, gr grasp of Satan. It doesn't even touch. And so all of heaven has their eyes turned upon this room right now, anticipating and waiting for those who don't know you to turn towards you. Help them, God. Help them to know that reality. God, I pray for those of us who've struggled in our faith, those who have been unnecessarily burdened and saddened and fearful of the rejection that we face. God, I pray you'd teach us how to turn that over and to symbolically dust off our feet and move on to what you have next for us. God, we don't ever want to be suspended in time. Lord, we want to be perpetually moving forward in the now to live out your gospel. Help us. Give us strength to let go where we need to let go but we always let go unto something. Help us to lay hold on faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in His Word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.